and welcome to Drawing and Dialogue. My name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. We are cartoonists, scholars, and educators. On Drawing and Dialogue, we put comics into historical, theoretical, and educational contexts. I work with K-12 students in schools in addition to alternative educational settings. I have three graphic novels out in addition to self-published works. I have a master's degree in art education. Um, I'm a PhD student in the University of Florida's English program. I also have a master's in English from UF. Um, my research currently focuses on trans embodiment and experience in comics and zines and museum studies. I also make self-published comics. Um, so, welcome to Drawing a Dialogue. We currently have a new format. So last episode, I spoke um, and but this time Remus is taking the helm of the ship. Mm-hmm. I'm taking the wheel. Um, and today we're going to be talking about ableism and accessibility. Um, and I'm really specifically interested in ableism as it manifests within comics culture. Um, this is a comics podcast, so hopefully that tracks. Um, but it is something that cons- yeah. that like is constantly shaping all of our experiences. So as we're talking. Obviously, there's still space for us to think about it more broadly and talk about, like, as an educator, I know, like, Kathy also has experiences with ableism in teaching and things like that. So, um, and obviously I do too. But I wanted to talk about this uh, because what I've often noticed is that most of the time in non-disabled spaces, when you bring up ableism or when folks are sort of talking about ableism, um, it's the emphasis is on language, right? Like, so avoiding using ableist terms, um, or, uh, specifically accommodation issues for disabled folks. And I'm not saying that those issues aren't like important. They super are. Um, but I wanted to start with like really defining what ableism is and clarifying it and then sort of moving into structural ableism, um, so to speak. So, Ableism is essentially, um, and this is my definition, I didn't pull this from anyone, um, a form of systemic oppression that defines what a normal body looks like and is capable of, with heavy quotation marks around normal, um, and the way that that society is then only made for bodies that fit that quote-unquote normal schema. So hopefully just from that, it's like clear enough that ableism is also rooted in racism, colonialism, transphobia, sexism, all these different interlocked systems of oppression, right? So that's why intersectionality is a thing that we talk about, um, because these systems all are connected and interlocked together and prop each other up. Um, And one of the problems actually with the more mainstream disability rights movement in the U.S. has been that historically it is very white and cisgender focused, um, which is why in sort of like a lot of mainstream, again, discussion of disability, it's very like white focused uh, on accommodations, on legal issues. Um, Mm. So obviously today I'm mostly talking about... um, Ableism is the primary focus and things that sort of uh, connect to ableism, but I definitely want us all to sort of think about the ways that like race, class, gender, um, and so forth also interact with ableism in regards to like who gets actually defined as quote unquote normal, right? So what bodies Mm. actually get to be quote unquote normal. Awesome. I'm I'm ready. (laughs) I'm ready for this conversation. And one thing I also want to note here is that some folks actually uh, separate the idea of ableism from disableism in that disableism 
which I'm going to define in a second, some, is something that falls under ableism, but is not like the whole sum of ableism. And I'm going to quote here from Jay Dolmage, who is a critical disability studies scholar. Um, he's also a comic studies scholar who we have uh, referenced in our episode on autism, because um, he wrote a very good uh, essay mm. on um, comics and disability. So um, this quote is from his book, Academic Ableism, from 2017. Disableism can be defined as, quote, a set of assumptions, conscious or unconscious, and practices that promote the differential or unequal treatment of people because of actual or presumed disabilities, uh, which he's quoting from Kumari Campbell. Disableism, in short, negatively constructs disability. Disableism negatively constructs both the values and the material circumstances around people with disabilities. Disableism says that there could be nothing worse than being disabled and treats disabled people unfairly as a result of these values. Ableism, on the other hand, instead of situating disability as bad and focusing on that stigma, positively values able-bodiedness. In fact, ableism makes able-bodiedness and able-mindedness compulsory. Mm. And so usually, um, and when I say usually, obviously I'm generalizing, right? But like, you know, if you sort of Mm -hmm. surface level look at like Twitter discourse, for instance, um, people focus a lot on disableism, right? The stigmatization of disability, Um, which again, really important to always be like aware of and addressing. But what I'm really interested in here is the idea of compulsory abledness. Or basically, in, hmm. which basically means like in our, for the US, for our context, right? Um, although you can also look at it internationally, that's sort of just out of our scope. Um, society, the sort of parts of society that we participate in, um, it's designed to already assume that you are an able-bodied and able-minded person. And if you aren't, you know, if in some way you're unable to meet that normative expectation um you become a threat to the system because you are unable to comply with it right and so the goal Mm. is always on bringing people's body minds back in line with that system because right there's no alternative right so you have to be able to do things this way and if you can't we will find a way to make it so you can versus being like maybe the way that you do things is okay, (laughs) right? Right. And I actually just saw on Twitter a sort of like good, clear example of the difference really that I'm getting to here. Uh, Basically, someone was tweeting about the labor shortage in the US and saying that, you know, one thing I haven't seen people talking about is the fact that 700,000 people died because of COVID, like in regards to the labor shortage. Um, And someone replied basically saying that like, um, that doesn't have a relationship necessarily to the workforce because uh, most people who died were probably old or disabled. And mm. that would be disabledism, right? Positioning like, oh, these deaths don't matter because they are disa- disabled people's lives matter less. Ableism, mm. on the other hand, would be the underlying assumption there that no disabled people are in the workforce or are capable of providing meaning labor paid or otherwise to our society. So they're connected, mm. right? And disabledism comes from ableism. But when I'm talking about ableism, I'm actually sort of like looking not beyond disability, but like all people, right? So like whether you personally identify yeah. as disabled or not, like ableism is something that affects like... It, everyone right 
Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And the most culturally common, culturally acceptable way to handle the inability to comply with this like normative ideas with accommodations, right? And Kathy, I'm sure you're super familiar with the idea of accommodations and the accommodations model. Uh, I sure am. Yeah, because that's something that teachers just have to deal with all the time. Um, where basically, yeah. again, the only option is to create some sort of accommodation that lets um, a person who is disabled or presumed to be disabled um, comply again with the assumed standard, right? And again, the assumption is that only disabled people ever need accommodations. Um, so like right. they're sort of linked ideas so again to quote dolmage from the same um, academic ableism text able-bodied people all have things they fall short with skills or tasks they will never master but when disabled folks say these are the things i need in order to do my very best it is labeled as accommodation accommodation is thought of as something that always needs to be created something that has a cost this underlines the inherent inaccessibility of nearly all of society, since seem- seemingly nothing is ever designed to be accessible in the first place. Yeah, so like accommodations, um, this episode is mostly focusing on the comics culture, but mm-hmm. I think there is a pretty clear um, way to think about this in terms of accommodations in the academy mm-hmm. slash schools. Um, so in public schools, there is something called IEPs. If you're a public school teacher, you probably know exactly what that is. An IEP is an individualized education program, and that is needed. It's like a evaluation, and it's needed for students to receive special education, aka specially designed instructions, which is legally binding. It's legally mm-hmm. protected. Um, but that sort of ties into why class sizes, like if you have a smaller class size, everyone benefits. And it's really because then if you have a smaller class size as an educator, you can then do specialized designed education for everyone because mm-hmm. everyone has a different learning style. And so like if you're thinking about the like accommodation in the sense that um, wanting all students to succeed by learning in the same manner. So if you have a classroom of 32 kids, you it's so much more vital for <laughs> students to have the same learning program and it's just basically it's such a tall order to ask for everyone to be successful under the same thing right right yeah and um, that is just like as we have talked about before the way schools become like this microcosm of the macrocosm of culture yes right needing students to needing everyone to be uh to be successful within one system right exactly (laughs) and that's um you know as the title academic ableism might imply this book that i'm quoting from um dolmage is really in that book uh explaining how universities um uh have this history of eugenics that actually like create ableism and like continue to create and perpetuate ableism by like positioning higher education as like the opposite of disability um Mm. it's a great it's a very great book it's very um accessibly written which is great (laughs) considering it's like an academic text (laughs) um but dolmage is very like conscientious about how he writes so i do def recommend it if this is something you're interested in um yeah and with schools you know this is we can sort of talk about the difference between accommodations and accessibility right where an accommodation is like a laundry list basically of like 
things that this structure has has decided it can do right like with this iep plans for instance right so like oh right right if you're you know like if you um are hard of hearing or deaf uh you know like here's the list of accommodations you can pick for this if you have adhd here's the list of accommodations um yeah and the thing with ieps is that they don't actually communicate what anyone's diagnosis mm -hmm. is or anything like that it's always like this person gets more time when they take a test mm -hmm. and that's it or something like that <laughs> which is good right like because you know it a comment it shouldn't be based on diagnosis because you know what i was gonna what i was gonna like add is that like the limitation of the accommodation structure is that it does assume that everybody with the same diagnosis needs the same um thing or that like someone who doesn't have that diagnosis wouldn't benefit from that accommodation right um Mm -hmm. versus accessibility which is when you build the system from the beginning <laughs> to yeah. accommodate a wide variety of people um like as many people as you can right. this is also uh i don't think i don't know if we've mentioned this in the podcast before but the concept of um universal design in teaching but also mm. it, universal design has other applications but that's the idea that you start by trying to like plan in advance and create as many different like options to engage with the same thing as possible that can bet that like multiple many kinds of different people can uh engage with basically um mm -hmm. which is why you know like a lot of disability activists are uh push harder for like access work and accessibility over accommodations mm -hmm. but to move into comics specifically um when i pitched this episode to kathy um, I've been, you know, thinking for a while about comics and the conversations that have been happening on Twitter, especially around and, you know, off Twitter, but on Twitter <laughs> around like labor and crunch and deadlines. Right. Because this has become this has always been a topic of conversation. Right. But I feel like um, especially in the wake of the pandemic, as more people are sort of like rethinking work. Right. And we've sort of seen this like big labor movement of like a lot of people going on strike and things it does feel like there has been sort of a return to these conversations in comics and in other creative fields about like crunch which is basically right when you have a deadline you have to hit so you work really 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 hard over time at like usually your per great personal expense to like hit that deadline um Mm -hmm. And um, as much as that's also an issue about labor and labor exploitation and as all, you know, race and class and the way that all of these things are connected, you know, who actually has the time and ability to do this work um, in the first place, right, to meet these deadlines. Um, this is absolutely also ableism. And it goes, you know, even beyond comics into just like the ways that uh, art schools and sort of like art art as a industry frames art making as a as like a career right so mm. for example in my undergrad and i did go to an art school um i had a professor who i liked a lot aside from this that i disagreed with him on um once told us he told us that if we didn't pull all-nighters while we were in school that we were actually doing college wrong and that was sort of like a baseline expectation for my school and i know a lot of other art schools that like it is not only normal, but expected that you do all-nighters or that you are constantly crunching for the deadlines for your class. And you went to art school also, right? So, like, what was sort of your experience there? Yeah, so I've personally never, ever done an all-nighter. 
Um, I've actually never been able to. I tried when I was a teenager, which <laughs> you would think a teenager would be able to do an all-nighter. But I think I eventually crashed and like fell asleep at like 6 a.m. or something like that. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to do this. But there is a culture of like long working hours in college. Um, and sort of the outliers are the professors who seem to value your time off and want you to have a balanced relationship with work. It seems like the common um, expectation is that you'll always be working if you're a student mm-hmm. um, rather than getting uh, time off. Yeah. Um, and I, I, It's that work hard, play hard kind of attitude. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and this is obviously beyond art school. Like I'm one of those outlier professors that like tells my students to go to sleep um and you know i'll hear from them like the amount of work that they're just expected to do for the other classes and it's like yeah no wonder you're exhausted and not <laughs> doing your best because like that's not a tenable yeah. relationship to have with work and i think a lot of the time that we would get messages we would get mixed messages yeah. and i think this is also pretty common in schools where it's like a school is like it's important for you to eat and sleep but also we're going to give you a ton of work and not enough time in the day to do it all. Yeah. <laughs> but you need to be eating and sleeping. <laughs> yes, yes. And that's a huge part of this, right? This mentality that like it's an individual responsibility to take care of yourself and also to meet this structural like system of deadlines and overworking. Um, and and that kind right. of goes into my next point. Like this is essentially the idea of compulsory abledness. Um, and I'm saying abledness to encompass mm-hmm. body and mind. Um, the assumption that if you are in this industry, in the art industry, although again it does extend beyond that, um, in the comics industry, you must be capable of producing a certain quality of work at a certain, I would say, dangerous production speed. Um, and if you aren't capable of that, either because you do have a disability um, that like, you know, requires you to take more time for things, or even if you don't identify as disabled, but you're just like a human being who needs, you know, sleep and to eat and Mm. to have time with your loved ones, um, you are the failure. Um, Or you're just not good enough to, to cut it, right? Like, it becomes like an individual failing rather than um, mm. something that the whole industry needs to look at and really sit with right mm. um and again i like i i'm gonna mention this a couple of times but like i really think we can connect this back to uh the episode we did last episode right where kathy talked us through uh tim okun's white supremacy culture um because ableism and white supremacy like ableism reinforces white supremacy and white supremacy reinforces ableism in a lot of ways um so you can sort of at least i can see right the connections between that and like you know the emphasis on individualism and the urgency and the like unable you know you're not able to like communicate or like collaborate um and like that kind of Mm -hmm. thing um so what i want to do is um describe a little bit of what i'm sort of perceiving as the structure of comics publishing you know, and with Kathy, of course, pitching in as Kathy is also in this industry and then I sure am. <laughs> and then connect that to ableism <laughs> and then maybe sort of talk through some alternatives. And obviously I'm thinking about like a lot like the comics industry, quote unquote, is a bunch of different things. Right. Like it's not like there's one particular model, but I'm thinking 
especially about graphic novel publishing. But I do think that these conversations also extend into other modes of comics publishing, including self-publishing, honestly. Um, Mm. And I have sort of two topics here that are what I think of the most when I'm thinking about this, like, relationship between ableism and how it shapes uh, expectations around output and production. Um, There's definitely also other things, right? This is just sort of the starting point. (laughs) Mm. And I also am going to talk about, like, both things that I think are more individually focused and also things that are aimed more at like publishing and publishers and um, people who are sort of more in charge of scheduling. Right. And with the caveat, obviously (laughs) that like, like we just noted in last episode on white supremacy culture, um, this ableism is something that needs to be collectively organized against, right? Like an individual person, you can, as an individual person, you can definitely unlearn things and set boundaries for yourself. Um, but like, there's always going to have, you know, people are, people need money, right? People need work. So, you know, sometimes people, you, you don't really get as much of a say, uh, you know, as an individual, especially if you are something, you know, within, uh, like, if you are one small part of a big machine pu- of publishing, right? Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's a whole pipeline, right? Yeah. Publishing. You have the creator, but then you also have the printer. You have the editors. You have the actual publisher, which is actually a human being. Yes. At the top of the food chain, um, and then you have the people who cut the checks. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, usually a lot of people involved. Um, yeah. Right. So I like. I just want to like be clear that like I'm not. I'm also not doing the like, and it's, I'm saying this because it's now your individual responsibility to fix ableism, but rather to be like, well, there, you know, this is what I, this is the things that I have noticed anyway, and that I think there, there can be alternative approaches to. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Okay. So the big one, the biggest category that I've been thinking about that I've sort of referenced already, right, is again, that sort of idea of crunch and deadlines and sort of our, like, the way that we think about time and output Mm -hmm. right and part of this i think is also hustle culture right so the idea that you need to constantly be grinding you need to constantly be working um to Mm -hmm. create to produce and then you constantly need to be like showing that work to get more jobs and you need to be doing that Mm. on these tight deadlines because we have normalized having really short deadlines and really short turnaround time and because of that, we see, or at least I was taught to see, um, moving a deadline back or missing a deadline again as a personal failure, right? Yeah, and 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 I think it is helpful if you haven't, what is the definition of short deadline, right? Yeah. And that can change because like, if you're thinking about superhero publishing, there's a lot of people. There's the writer, mm-hmm. there's the artist, there's the anchor, there's the letterer, there's the colorist. So the, usually you have a team of five people producing 40 pages in one month, mm-hmm. right? But there's a lot of people involved. Um, but a lot of graphic novel publishing, and I think the ones that you're probably thinking of, Remus, right? Yeah. It's an individual. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it is one person who normally does the job of at least five people, yes. right? And so a short deadline can seem like two years, but... Right. So like that, I'm just saying that definition of short deadline is is adaptable to the different projects. Yeah. Yeah. So a short for and, and, you know, for clarity's sake, for folks maybe who don't really have an inside on um, the 
I don't have a good word for, but like basically these larger pub larger publishing house graphic novels right um the big five the big five right which would be scholastic mcmillan penguin random house <laughs> mcmillan penguin random house scholastic and harper collins I, I don't actually know the big five. I just know <laughs> Macmillan is one of them. <laughs> so that sort of like cohort of book publishers, right? These like larger publishing yeah. houses. And yeah. usually, you know, sometimes it's an artist writer team, but often it's one person, right? Who is doing uh, all of the pieces or it'll be like one person who then brings on like a colorist or something. But usually, you know, usually it's more like one artist, right? Mm-hmm. And-, and oftentimes bringing on a colorist or a flatter is usually... Seen as a personal failing. <laughs> yes. Right. Like if you need assistance, if you are unable to do every single part of this book on your own, <laughs> as, um, yeah. y- you know, that, that bringing in that extra support is treated sometimes as a negative, right? Rather than like an opportunity for collaboration. Because usually it comes out of your, yes. usually you pay them. Right. It comes out of your advance. Yeah. Which then makes it feel like a punishment, right? Because you are losing some money that you maybe need to live (laughs) Um, because like Kathy was saying, like oftentimes the deadline for these kind of graphic novels can be short, like two years and two years seems like a long time, Um, but two years to draw, to write and then thumbnail and then draw and then finish, you know, whether that's like inking, coloring or just coloring or whatever, um, a like 300 to 400 page graphic novel is not a lot of time actually. No, it's not. And as, that's not even taking into account, you know, you obviously have like moments where you're waiting for feedback before you can continue forward. Yes. So and that is important context. <laughs> yeah. And, and also thinking about crunch in the publishing yes. offices, too. Yeah. They're also crunching. They got a lot of projects happening. So when oftentimes people will be waiting for feedback and that can be a while because they're crunching on other projects. Right. Everyone's crunching. So it's it's un- <laughs> it's like unhealthy and unsustainable for everyone involved. <laughs> yeah. Um which is an import also important, right? So um and part of this I think is also like email culture, right? And social media and this like expectation that you always have to be kind of online and engaged, like you don't get to have off hours. Um, and that you have to always get back to things within a certain amount of time, right? So everything always has to be progressing forward as quickly as possible to the next part. Um, again, right? Progress as the like white supremacy mm-hmm. culture version of progress. Um, and if someone is slow to reply to you or if you are a person who is slow to reply to emails, like that can be painted as like a negative, like this person is lazy or this person doesn't care, Right. Mm-hmm. And I think as we're thinking about social media, and it, it, it all ties to, down to capitalism, right? Everything we're talking about has mm-hmm. to do with capitalism. And these social media companies, they're like kind of built around forcing you to have constant engagement with their apps. That's what they're interested in. They want you to be addicted to their apps. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're sort of built to do that. So like if you think in an example um, thinking about those stories that only last 24 hours. So you have to be looking um, at least daily. And I'm sure a lot of us are looking hourly yeah. um, to, to make sure that we're catching everything that we want to catch. And it is important to your career, yeah. right? To be seen, to be able to be respond, to be part of the conversation. Um, yeah, like, and- like the algorithms really, especially, you know, as more and more of these social media websites move away from like a chronological 
way to display posts into these algorithm driven displays uh, where even if you, you know, do follow someone, you might not see what they're posting. Right. You know, I know so many people who get really hung up on like, oh, like if I don't post every day, I'm going to lose my audience and like there goes my career or like, you know, I'm posting, but I'm not getting enough likes or enough views. And like you get stuck like the algorithms have are sort of like force people into these like um very scary like loops right where you feel like your career is in the balance if you can't like meet the algorithm (laughs) yeah and i think it's important it's not about like it's important to recognize we are making the content that makes these large companies money yes right so they create these harsh algorithms to encourage us to make a certain type of content in a certain schedule so they can make money. Right. <laughs> right. And again, you know, and this is how we see where ableism intersects with labor and capitalism, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and how these things, again, sort of co- constantly, and I'll, you know, we'll talk about that again in a minute because I have another thing that relates to that. But yeah. I do want to talk about like what an alternative to these sort of like this this scheduling and this constant need to be engaged both as a worker and online and all that like comes from and i'm not saying get rid of deadlines uh i am a person who personally finds deadlines very useful and functional actually i hate deadlines (laughs) (laughs) i mean i do think they're like a little overrated but i do often like need a benchmark to hold myself accountable to i know totally and i think and and i think that not to get off track a little bit, but it's interesting how, like, I hate deadlines. I hate, I don't have a Patreon because I hate having to do something monthly. Mm-hmm. I hate, and I, whenever I've tried to do something strict, I, it's not the way I want to create, but I'm still, like, creating all the time yeah. without deadlines. <laughs> no, for sure. It's just, I mean, that, I think, like, whether you're a person that responds well to deadlines or not is just, like, a brain thing, right? Like, absolutely. Um, yeah. Some people mm-hmm. like having that, like, whether it's a self-given deadline or an external deadline, like some people like to have that and then some people don't work well with that. Um, yeah. And I think and I think if I t- if I had told that to anyone, they would be like, really? <laughs> it makes it sound like I'm flaky, but I'm like, I work all the no, time. No, you are like do... the most type A person I know. <laughs> I know. I do stuff all the time and yet I still hate deadlines. Like, <laughs> Kathy, your planner goes in 15 minute increments. <laughs> like... Yeah, I, I am I'm very strict with my time, yes. but I don't want an external deadline. Right, which is totally <laughs> fair, right? But um, to return sort of to like alternatives, right? Um, understanding that adjusting deadlines is a normal part of the creative process, but really any process, right? And, you know, I'm tagging that as flexibility. And when I say flexibility, I always give a caveat that I don't mean flexibility in the, like, way that very, like, neoliberal workplaces will be like, we need to be flexible, which means that you should be working from home 40 hours a day. (laughs) Um, Right? Like, we're giving you more ways to do work all the time. Like, no, I mean flexibility in the sense of, like, being able to recognize that things happen and that a deadline is a, a an intended goal but not something that if it is missed means that people are bad um or don't care right mm-hmm. so like if someone misses a deadline it's not a personal failure right so much as a moment to reflect like okay what about this didn't work what about the schedule didn't work what are you missing that you need to be successful um whether that's a question mm-hmm. you're asking yourself or like 
you know, something that like if you are on an editorial team and you can, you know, start to ask that like what, you know, is it time? Is it additional support? Is it like, frankly, money? Like, what is it, right? Um, And like, then how do we build out deadlines from there to be more realistic and supportive on, again, both the like creative side and the publisher side? Because again, I do think this is also a thing I see in like self-publishing where people are very hard on themselves if they're like, I need to finish this book for this show. And then they don't do yeah. it because of whatever reason. So even when you're your yeah. own boss, <laughs> it can be, um, yeah. it can be a thing. And I think that's actually why when I, I don't ever do shows as my deadlines, mm-hmm. I just make stuff. And then I remember when I'm getting ready for a show, I'm like, oh, I, I made that last month. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's easier for me. But um, and I think as we're talking about flexibility in deadlines and I, some publishers might be sitting there and may ask about money. Right. Right. Because there is a pipeline. And a lot of the times publishers, uh, they have to schedule a time a book is published with a printer. Right. And sometimes that's a pretty they in order to get that book into that printer, it has to be at a certain time. And they have scheduled that. And sometimes that schedule, I'm assuming, is probably years in advance, but Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, actually. Um, But I know that there are some strict deadlines with certain things. And if you miss that deadline, it costs money. But what I would say is I'd encourage publishers to try to start to imagine a model that doesn't rely on strict deadlines. Try to, like, fantasize about what that could be, Mm -hmm. right? Rather than sticking ourselves within the model of like systems in which that we are stuck in, right? We are asking for an imagination to imagine ourselves outside of that system. Right, exactly. Um, And, and, you know, that could be even like from the jump being like, okay, two years for a whole graphic novel is unrealistic. So let's plan for four years. And then if it gets done earlier, that gives us more time to reflect and like, you know, do what we need to do for it. Right. Like, the, you know, even yeah. even if you're like stuck within, even if like you are in a position where you're sort of stuck within that model, I think there are still ways to be like, hey, from the jump, we should just be building out more time. Like, And publishers, you, we, they get to, I mean, some things are trendy, right? Yes. You want to jump on a trend. But also publishers, you we get to make our trends. Yes. You get to invent it. <laughs> that is <laughs> Let's change thing, it. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, some people are capable of working on that short time, but that doesn't mean that that should be normative for everyone, right? Or that, Mm -hmm. like, because some people can sacrifice their health to do this, everyone should be able to. Yeah, (laughs) and I I think, obviously, we are both, me and Remus are both on the creative side. We haven't worked for publishers, although Remus did a while ago. Well, I did an internship. Yeah, but I think, and, and I know... A lot of the times, like creatives, it feels like we don't know what's going on in the office, which I'm sure we don't know all the details. Um, But what I'm saying is I encourage you, if you are in an office and you know the details, try to open your imagination. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, even like small things are a good place to start if you can't bring yourself to imagine a radical re, re- ex- ex- Yeah. <laughs> and I just I just want to be like, we're a team. Yeah. We aren't like saying... Publishers are bad. That's not what we're trying to do here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> For sure. We want to, yeah. Yeah, because to bring it back to the last episode with white supremacy culture, right, again, the idea that, like, 
it's all these like individual people doing their work individually and so if someone misses something or doesn't do something it like messes up everyone's individual work versus it being a collaborative process Mm. where everyone is equally responsible and like you know if someone needs support that's not seen as like oh you're messing up my workflow it's like no this is part of collaborating is that sometimes you know you offer support in different ways right so that yeah totally we should all be on the same side with that because they also again like i know that i've been in an office i've been in the publishing office i know that like editors are also being exploited like (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's be a team we just want comic books yeah (laughs) exactly um and also part of this um and this is more like i think internal work on everyone's part that reflects in the culture um is the idea of laziness in the first place i'm gonna repeat this a million times but laziness does not exist no one on earth is lazy that's just not a thing Mm. you know people sometimes people produce work at different rates um sometimes people don't want to do something and that makes them slow at it that's not lazy (laughs) if your environment is not supportive to you and you are having a hard time finishing work because your environment is not supportive you're not lazy you're in an unsupportive environment even if maybe you aren't realizing that it's because your environment is unsupportive because again we have been sort of taught to see all of this as individual flaw individual failure Mm. so someone who can't produce a new comic every year for example is not lazy or not not hustling enough people are just different and need different support structures and processes in different amounts of times to, Mm -hmm. to, to make work and using laziness as a label for people to fail to meet ableist ideas around ability and output is a disabledist thing also right because it's stigmatizing access and access need Right. Because time is also Mm -hmm. an access need. Right. If someone needs more time for something, again, whether they personally identify as disabled or not, like and that gets labeled as a negative that is stigmatizing that access need. And that is Mm -hmm. also how disabled people end up being categorized as lazy a lot of the time. Right. And so, again, this, you know, this kind of just comes back to this idea of like, you know, flexibility and like understanding that people need different support structures um, and then another big one here that I'm going to say is, like, a lot of this is also killing the ableist cop in your head, right? Because mm. I know that, like, I, you know, I'm saying all this, but I definitely still feel guilty if I don't do enough and I will call myself lazy, um, even though, like, I know mm. that I'm not a lazy person and I know it's not because of that. But we have this sort of ableist capitalist programming that we are taught from childhood, right, that um, your self-worth is sort of like tied to how much you can produce and whether or not that production fits in with capitalist ideas of value, right? So the kind of work you're doing also has to be beneficial to capitalism. And if you aren't doing that or you can't mm-hmm. do that, um, again, more it's considered a moral failure, right? A personal failure. Yeah. And, and in schools, I mean, thinking about I am someone as a teacher, I create deadlines or students, um, and I've come to the place where I moved completely away from penalties for late work. Um, so research shows, and I actually don't have this research, so I'm going to have to look for it again, um, but research shows that deadlines don't actually offer any educational benefits to students. Um, mm-hmm. If they complete the work, they have learned the work, right? So it doesn't matter if they've 
did it at this day or on this day. They've still done the work, so they've gotten the educational benefits from that. Um, so I've actually found this to be really success- successful as like a preemptive quote unquote accommodation strategy. Um, students in the past have really taken advantage of just of this, like fulfilling all the credited work um, later in the trimester on their own time. Um, and I don't know what's going, I don't need to know the student's diagnosis, right. but like I just tell them you turn in the late work, you get full credit, do it when you need it to do it. Um, the only harsh deadline that I give them is I personally need to turn in my grades yes. for them at a certain time when the class ends, right? So I let them know what that day is, mm-hmm. in which usually it's a week out from when I need to turn it in because, frankly, I deserve time yes. to work on grading them too. Yeah. <laughs> but actually communicating this with students, mm-hmm. right? So a lot of the times it'll, things will feel really arbitrary and actually just telling students, I this is my deadline. I need a week to, week to grade your work, so please turn it in with at least a week before this day and then I I can't accept it after that because I need time right Mm -hmm. but actually sitting down and explaining what a deadline is rather than making them arbitrary um has been very helpful for my students yeah and I love that you like brought that example up because I do the exact same thing um I don't do penalties for late work I just tell them like since they're since I work with college students I often tell them that like they need to communicate with me because I'm trying to teach them that it like they need to like communicate (laughs) when they are having a problem um they don't have to tell me any details or anything but like you know just an email that's like hey sorry I need an extension right but even if they don't do that, I'm like, you're fine. Just turn it in. Because, you know, I haven't, I don't have this research. I haven't looked at this research that Kathy has, although I would love to look at it if you track it down. I'm going to try to find it. But what I do just sort of know from being a person in the world who has observed this is that um, with the college age students, if they think they're going to get penalized anyway, they just won't do it. And that's not helpful to either of us because then they're not learning <laughs> because they're like, yeah. I'm just not going to do this assignment because I'm not going to get full credit for it. And it's like, I I want you to do the assignment because I need you to like learn this thing, not because I wa- am going to grade you on it. Yeah. And that's the thing is that grades shouldn't be an award. Right. Right. Grades are supposed to just be feedback. What What is the purpose of a grade? And we have a whole episode on grading. Yes. Um, but it, it's, it should be student feedback. It should be like, you gave this to me and now you have received a B and let's, let me tell you why yes. you got a B on it. Um, it shouldn't be an award. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And, you know, people, again, like students are human beings who have things in their lives which may include disabilities but can also be like a wide range of things that impact how a person is able to work and when they're able to do stuff so yeah and also i like calling this again like when we call this like a preemptive accommodation strategy is an accessibility right that's access work is that you have set this up already to allow for this so it's accessible um from the job so it's cool yeah (laughs) i love i love uh setting myself setting my students up to have everything be accessible Mm -hmm. Um, because honestly it's less work in the long run exactly (laughs) and that's actually i think one of the biggest roadblocks i've encountered in teaching when you know i have had conversations about this work um with people and i imagine you would get similar reactions probably from um you know people in comics is that like oftentimes the mantra i've gotten is that like oh if you make this accessible in this way like you're making more work for yourself whereas i've actually found that it ends up being less work for myself 
because I am not expending the energy keeping track of everyone and chasing them down and doing extra math to calculate point reductions. Yeah, and it's really emotional, right? It's emotional work to try to carefully explain, like, if you have a that they might be failing or something yes. like that it's stressful it's really stressful and, um and um the other thing i wanted to say here real quickly too is your point about like you know you tell them about the week that you need to grade that's also really important right because one of the big um parts of access work is understanding that sometimes access needs are conflicting and that you have to sort of balance mm. like you know yes obviously like if you are a teacher for instance you deserve to have time to grade so being accessible doesn't mean like putting your own access needs aside um because that's also not healthy, right? That's also not healthy for them. It's not healthy for you. Yeah. So you do still ha- you you do set that boundary um, and be like, no, like this is the only hard deadline because, like you said, like you explain to them, and then I think that's like it being transparent with them and not just making things feel like arbitrary, like oh, that's just the way it is, is like a huge thing, right? Yeah. So <laughs> the other day, this reminded me, um, I had a group of ninth graders. And I was like introducing them to my class and like the syllabus and stuff. And I said, um, so you can email me Monday through Friday. I won't answer emails on the weekend. Right. If you don't email me on the weekend, I won't give you homework. Do you agree? And they all <laughs> nodded so <laughs> so funny. <laughs> they looked so excited. <laughs> oh, that's a good strategy. Because <laughs> if I don't ask them to do work on the weekend, then they can't email me. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Like, I I have a policy now where I don't reply to emails until 48 hours have passed because I will forget things that I've already agreed to do and then I end up saying yes to too many things. Mm. And I have a little thing, like, I tell my students, like, I respond to emails during work hours. So, you know, like, nine to six during the week and not on weekends. Um, and then my signature has a thing that's like, you know, I take 40 hours to respond. If you're a student, like, I will get back to you as soon as I can, but please wait 48 hours before following up. And I think another thing that's key, and this is ties into accessibility, but it ties into all all sorts of other stuff, mm-hmm. is being clear and communicating this stuff. Yes. Right? There's a lot of, un- it's like the unwritten curriculum, right? Where you're like, there is so many assumptions in the academy and mm-hmm. in schools that students should just know this they should know that they can email you whenever they want and they should know that you know but like they don't necessarily know this everyone's coming from different places every everyone's coming from different experiences and so like clearly stating your email policy clearly stating your late work policy Mm -hmm. at the beginning and then continuing to remind them because there's a lot of info that gets told them at the first day yes. of school <laughs> so you got to remind them and make it make that information accessible either on a website or on some sort of google doc or anything like that yeah. that they can refer to um mm-hmm. is accessibility work right it is yeah and and like part of that too is syllabi right because i could definitely like oh like you know people usually put their policies in their syllabi a syllabus is not an accessible document a syllabus is usually like at least like for me and like the college and like the kind of like syllabi that I have seen as a student and then also that I have to like turn in every semester they're usually like 12 to 15 page documents with so much text in them that like yeah yeah, it's all there if someone has the time to sit and close read it for six hours Uh, yeah (laughs) I've 
I've actually pulled back. Yeah, I've pulled back a lot. And that actually had to do with when we had to go all digital yeah. last year, where it was like, I'm I'm being inundated with all these like emails and all this digital information because now we're all going remote. Um, and I'm not reading the whole email. Yes. Right. And I, I can't imagine what a teenage brain is doing. So I'm going to do just bullet points. If yeah. I want a kid to know something, it's like a single phrase. <laughs> right. I have like a boilerplate template for the syllabi I have to turn in for my department. But then I have, we use Canvas. So that's like our e-learning platform. And I lay everything yeah. out again differently on the Canvas so that it's clear and able to f- be found. And like, yeah, that takes me like a little extra work in the beginning of the semester. But then like it takes away almost all of the work in the middle of the semester because I don't get a million emails about things that are on the syllabus. Right. (laughs) That you have to answer over and over again. Yes. Yeah. And I know we have just fallen back into talking about school (laughs) when we were going to talk about comic culture with this, but school is a microcosm of the real world, right? And so, like, how many publishers out there do you, like, is there, like, a, a... pdf that you send all your authors that are like this is what a printing deadline is like this is what this is like Mm -hmm. this is how we're going to communicate with you because i've never seen that and that sounds like it would be really helpful yeah no making those like (laughs) unwritten um rules that people are just expected to know clear is an accessibility thing and it ties back into everything because it's like who's actually taught what that means like who has access already and the answer is usually as with academia like upper class white people privileged people yeah yeah so privileged privileged people exactly so yeah it and then and and so hey make a syllabus (laughs) make a publishing syllabus no honestly that's a great idea like because i think that would also i know i'm not joking i no, i know you're not because i think like if you are working with an artist and you're trying to communicate your expectations to them you know you can't assume that they know all this stuff already and i think it could like save people down the line if they're like okay this is the public like this is the printing deadline i have to hit so here's like i understand what that means now and then here's what i need and can we like move this or whatever right like yeah and i'm gonna be frank i think a lot of the time when information is hidden Mm -hmm. it also could be negotiations Mm -hmm. people try to hide how much money this is worth or something how much money their time is so like examine if you're nervous about actually being upfront about what these deadlines are and why they exist and not sharing the information on how much work this takes so you're they people know how much they need to be compensated in order to do that Uh, look inward yeah (laughs) that's what i say to that yeah, it's. I mean, again, this is a big structural issue, but like, uh, the the system shouldn't be such that you need to hide the important information. Yeah. Right. Like, it's sh- if if that, yeah, that is something that is worth like check in with yourself about that. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. To move into my other topic, which ties back into all of this, these are all sort of connected, but this one is more just like really tackling assumptions around physical and mental ability. Um, So obviously, again, this is back to the idea of compulsory able-bodiedness and the idea that like, oh, well, if so-and-so can meet this schedule, then everyone should be able to meet this schedule or like a person who's not disabled should just be able to do this or whatever, right? Or even like just thinking like, oh, a person should be able to do this in general and if you can't, there's something wrong with you, right? And I also mean assumptions about other people and also assumptions about yourself and what you are capable of. 
Um, because the thing about disability is that it can happen to anyone. And just because right now you might not identify as able-bodied, or you might identify right now as able-bodied, I mean, um, that doesn't mean that you will never in your life experience disability. And with that, experiencing disability is not automatically this terrifying negative thing to be avoided at all costs, right? And here's like a personal anecdote, right? So I'm disabled and um, I have been disabled for my whole life. Um, I had back surgery when I was 14 for scoliosis um, and I still have the rod in my back and I've always experienced chronic back pain and I can't like... I don't have a good range of motion and, you know, I just have these like different things because of my back. Right. Um, but I did not mm -hmm. actually identify as disabled. Like I didn't take days disabled as like a political identity or like a thing I associated with myself until grad school because I was always like, oh, well, but I can push through this pain and do this work. So I don't, it doesn't count. I'm not disabled because in mm. my, because, you know, I was associating disability as this like very negative stigmatized thing, right? That I couldn't see like applied to myself because I was able to sort of like at my own detriment fake being abled basically, right? Mm. Yeah. So I never identified as disabled um, and I still don't really. Um, but then uh, COVID-19 uh, came around and then I needed to argue for my own health accommodations at work. And advocate for myself. And so I have asthma. Um, I have exercise-induced asthma, um, which does come into my life as a player. Like, I can't go upstairs. Mm -hmm. So if someone asks me um, if I need accommodation, I'm always like, I can't really go upstairs. I'll need an elevator. Because if I'm like, normally I can, but if I'm, I'm doing a speaking, mm -hmm. like if I'm visiting a school and I need to speak immediately after I go upstairs, I can't. So right. I <laughs> so that's like a accessibility thing for me. Um, but as I was negotiating my health accommodations, the ADA protects asthma, yes. people with asthma. And so I was like, this is a disability. This asthma is a disability and I am protected under the ADA. And they, my school was like, okay, yeah. <laughs> you, are, you have accommodations that we can give you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, I mean, I think I never, I, never identified as disabled and i don't know if that's part of my identity mm -hmm. but it does play a part like my body plays a part in my life <laughs> yes exactly and i think this might be a good spot to sort of like because one thing i'm not saying right it when i say like accessibility benefits everyone and ableism harms everyone i'm not saying disability doesn't exist right like it's mm -hmm. it's the same thing as when you talk about like when you say gender is a construct you don't mean that people don't experience gender we just i just you know you mean like it is constructed to be certain things because of mm -hmm. discourse and disability is the same way um so what more basically more commonly accepted now but there's the social model of disability which is what you know, most disability activists um, have sort of like made more mainstream and prominent, which is the idea that like a disability, what makes it disabling isn't so much the like need for a different way of doing things. It's that society is not built to allow for that difference. Right. Right. So like, and you know, obviously this, this is going to be again, sort of beyond our scope because there's complications there around like medicine and like different people have different opinions about like cure and stuff like that which i'm not going to get into but what i'm basically saying is like 
it is internalized ableism to think that disability has nothing to do with you. And so you don't need to think about any of this at all, right? Because mm -hmm. like, mm -hmm. even if you are able-bodied, you can get a repetitive stress injury. You can yeah. burn yourself out, right? You can, like, there's all sorts of different things that happen that reduce or can cause you to have to approach your ability to do things in different ways that aren't considered quote unquote normative. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, after, as I was drawing my graphic novel, as I was, I was drawing the breakaways, I had to go see a physical therapist mm -hmm. because I was doing repetitive things every day for eight hours or longer. And that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> it turns out. necessarily made to do that. <laughs> and yeah. And, and whenever people ask me, they're like, what helped? What made you feel better? And I was like, finishing my graphic novel. Right. <laughs> so you could, you didn't have to keep doing that. <laughs> That's what helped. <laughs> exactly. And like, part of this is again, this, you know, the internalized idea that like, even if you, because I think this is a thing. Like I said, this is a thing that I had, right, where, like, I didn't necessarily see other disabled people negatively, right? But I couldn't associate that mm -hmm. idea with myself um, because we are taught that disability is a negative thing that is, like, completely outside of normal existence. So I think people sometimes have a lot of fear of, like talking about themselves as disabled or acknowledging that they have experienced disability because it feels like such a negative, scary, bad thing. And it doesn't have to be, mm -hmm. you know, obviously I'm not saying like being in pain is great, but like, um, <laughs> there are parts of my disability experience that I like and that I'm happy for, you know what I mean? Not the back, the brain yeah. stuff, but mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> the point is, um, a lot of mm. a lot of it is less like again. It's not like oh, I as an individual am suffering. It's oh, society is ableist, and so I have to go through these additional hoops. Yeah, and we haven't talked about this, and I just want to acknowledge it because it's a part of my life now. Mm -hmm. um, it also has to do with ageism. Yes, right. Like a, a lot of the elderly um, experience disability, um, and. It makes stuff hard. <laughs> yeah, and that's literally my next note, too, is that part of this is this idea that you have to accomplish something or produce your a, a, a certain amount of work while young, right? And this, like, mm -hmm. societal obsession with these, like, 30 under 30 lists and, like, this idea of young success. Um, not that, like, there aren't young people making amazing work and that we shouldn't, like, value also young people's work. But that is also ageism. That right? is also ageism. <laughs> but um, there's a cultural fear of aging that is related to the loss of ability mm. and the fear of becoming disabled. Mm -hmm. So again, my alternatives here are just sort of like resisting the urge to assume or generalize like what other people can do based on your own personal experiences or like what you have been taught is normal. Like, you know, the, the sort of like hustle culture, like, well, it, you know, I worked a job, I worked 60 hours a week, and I still made this book. And so, you know, if you don't do that, you're just lazy, right? Mm -hmm. And also, and internalize, again, sort of with yourself, if you're like, I work a full-time job, and I haven't had time to make a comic, and it must be like all because I am not cut out for this, right? As opposed to understanding, like, that you might just need more time because you are working a lot. Yeah. And again, I, I said this already, but unlearning the capitalistic idea that your self-worth or that human value in general is tied to labor output and specifically labor that is beneficial to capitalism, right? 
mm-hmm. and prioritizing recovery work and care. And I don't mean like self-care in the like, buy a bath bomb and that will like cure all your anxiety. <laughs> right. <laughs> but like taking like under like being honest with yourself about like what you need, taking proactive steps to meet those needs. If you can, um, if you if you are working in publishing, having an agent who can fight for you <laughs> to have like yeah. um, better, you know, preventative care and schedules. Um, again, on the editor, you know, solidarity on the editorial side and like recognizing where you need to also like do this work and like where you where people have the ability to push back against higher ups who are imposing cre- uh, mm-hmm. bad schedules, you know, things like that. And again solidarity is a huge one here right so being in solidarity with people collectively like again this can't happen every time because people need money and things like that but you know like turning down stuff that is a bad schedule or like doesn't pay enough and that you know right or like making a point Mm. like my favorite thing is when someone gets like an exploitative offer and then they like publicly talk about it and they say like this is why I t- <laughs> this is why I turned it down. This is why it's exploitative because what that does also is it makes it harder for them to then go find someone who doesn't know better. Right? So like mm-hmm. part of this is like solidarity and collectively educating each other and being able to like willing to like stand up for each other and help each other out and make it so that people who are in more desperate situations don't have to rely on exploitative work, right, to get by. Um yeah. And like so much of this isn't saying we don't want to make comments. Oh no. Or any of this, right? I mean, we had joked about <laughs> everyone makes fun of my planner in which I schedule every half hour and 15 minutes carefully <laughs> of my day. Yes. But the reason I have such a carefully planned schedule is I plan when I'm going to see my friends. Mm-hmm. I plan having an hour for all my meals. I plan when I'm going to bed, when I'm waking up, and then I know what my final deadline is for some sort of project. And then I can schedule in the enough time that I need in order to accomplish that project in a timely way that is healthy for me and healthy for my loved ones. <laughs> like, <laughs> but like, that's a skill, right? Time management skill. That is something I have carefully, I have tracked how long art projects take mm-hmm. me. I know my hourly rate. I know what I need to ask for and advocate for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is in protection of my body. Yeah. And I think I think that's uh, that is a skill that I think like especially people like you and I would uh also hazard myself although I am I have only sort sort of started learning how to set ba- better boundaries this past year. Um but like like that is a skill I think that like folks who have experience with if they can like should pass on to like newer artists or like folks that are like getting into it because that it is learned right that's not a thing that you're like taught um no you're not taught to have a healthy work-life balance because having a healthy work-life balance would be bad for capitalism yeah so and you're uh, you're given homework i don't know i think homework is like wild to me it's not good because like teachers don't do a ton of work at home i mean if you are then we should examine that if you're like grading at home till 10 p.m but giving homework it's just like wild we're asking students to stay up in their evenings when they should be free at home to Mm -hmm. do home stuff i just like homework is like (laughs) 
Well, it's like <laughs> so against it. No, for sure. Well, because again, it like that we you know train children through school yeah. to not have a work life balance. So then, when yeah. they are on the work floors, they will work overtime all the time because no one has ever taught them how to have a work life yeah. balance. And like, and like, I want. This is what I want. Young cartoonists or any cartoonist. You don't need to be young. You can just be a cartoonist. I want you to make that comic book that you want to make. Yes. Right? And I want success for you. And there are ways you can do that. (laughs) Right. And my the other thing. I want this to be empowering. I want accessibility to be empowering. And it super is. Like when you recognize what you need and you do and you know often this takes like a lot of work and support from other people but like you know when you begin to unpack like the feelings of guilt and shame and and embarrassment that I think are often associated with like recognizing that you do need access needs because like again compulsory able-bodied ableness right um Mm -hmm. but like if you you know if if you can build that support network for yourself um or like you have that support network and you're able to do that work like being able to be like no saying no to people rules (laughs) and i'm not saying it's like (laughs) i'm not saying it's easy because like i like i am a chronic overworker and kathy can attest to this and i have had to work very hard the past year to like learn how to set boundaries and have a healthier work-life balance um but it is like really empowering I've said to no to so much stuff this week, really. It rules. I love saying um, no. Okay. But um, I did, there is a little bit of a rant that I, I want to do. Oh, go ahead, please. Um, which is, so when you're in schools, oftentimes, as if you're an educator, um, they have these accommodations. Again, quote unquote, right? Mm-hmm. We've talked about the difference, difference between accessibility and accommodation, which I hadn't actually differentiated, so I appreciate that. Yeah, of course. Uh, Remus. Um, so a lot of the times... <laughs> The disability office at an institution, and I've heard this a lot. Yes. This isn't just a critique of institutions that I've been a part of. Um, we'll say, we want to give your student, this is the accommodation they can get. They can't get more right. accommodation because that doesn't represent the real world. Right. And here, this is the real world. I'm <laughs> a real all. teacher. <laughs> this is a real class. I don't know what are we preparing them for. We're preparing them for exploitation in yes. the future. Yes. To like, I'm like, this is real. If a professor, if if I want my students to learn in high school, they should learn beforehand, but I want them to learn in high school what kind of accommodation they can receive and what they need. And then they can advocate for themselves mm-hmm. when they are in college. like i want them to have that experience of being successful i don't want to give them an experience in which they are struggling because they are not getting what the kind of needs that they need (laughs) i want them to learn what success feels like in my classroom and then they can they can ask for that in the future it's just so frustrating that it doesn't represent the real world. I just, what are we preparing them for? <laughs> no, you're right. And this is something that I see a lot because, like, the kind of class I teach, um, the, like, list of accommodations that students often have, like, don't really fit. So someone will come in and be like, hey, I have this, like, letter from the our Disability Resource Center. Um, you know, I need extra time on time tests. And I'm like... Great, we're not doing any of those. So, like, what can I give you instead? <laughs> that would like, what is it yeah. that you actually need for this environment? Because, like, again, these like accommodation lists are not responsive. They're just lists that this the institution 
decided, like, per the ADA, are acceptable. Yeah, and I, I don't believe, um, I don't, if Rima says uh, laziness doesn't exist a million times, I'm going to say a million times, there's no such thing as too many accommodations. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that does not exist. I will say, if um, you're getting a lot of people that are asking for a lot of accommodations, you might need to re-examine how you've set up <laughs> what you're doing. Hey. But that would be the only time. <laughs> And and that's what I'm saying. And that's where the benefit of creating an accessible model yes. helps you down the line. Because me uh, saying no late work policy has made it so much easier when a student has ADHD, anxiety, right. uh, death in the family, all sorts of things that can cause them to delay. I don't need to deal with that. You don't. <laughs> and they already know. And they're like, and that's the other, the other, I also, again, it goes back to boundaries because like, we teach students and this is true also in comics publishing right like if you miss a deadline like people have to really perform trauma to get approved quote unquote for what they need right like you know people will demand documentation right like oh you want like a medical leave of absence oh you had a death in the family you have to bring in proof and so yeah. and so you know people are sort of And you know what? I'm not a counselor. Exactly. I'm not a trained psychologist. I can't help people. Exactly. So people are like <laughs> primed to trauma dump, right? Which isn't they shouldn't have to do that cuz no one should have to perform trauma. Um but also as the person who is receiving that information, that's difficult emotionally. Like I don't want to know. I'm happy to like be as supportive as I yeah. can, but I'm a teacher. <laughs> you know, like I'm not going to yeah. like I can't fix the situation for them so i'm at the same way where i'm very clear up front like you don't have to tell me details because i it's not my business and then they don't because they know that i will just do it um yeah and they don't have to perform like yeah and it's healthy for everyone yeah yeah because like i and and here's the thing i'm not being cold we aren't being cold no we care a lot about our students right Mm -hmm. um and if they feel safe with us i would be happy to hear a student out but yeah. I'm not a counselor. I'm not trained. I'm not a trained professional therapist. I'm not. I'm not trained in that stuff. I can be mm-hmm. um, sensitive and I can be a friend, right? But mm-hmm. to position yourself in that position without the training isn't a good thing. That's unhealthy it's da- for you and it's your dangerous. Class. You can you can get hurt and you can cause hurt. Like yeah. It's, so I, it's yeah. it's care. We are caring. Yes. No. Yeah. Boundaries are care. I feel like boundaries are care, and that needs boundaries to be like super care. clear. Um, having healthy boundaries <laughs> is great for everyone involved in the situation. Um, and again, to bring this back, and I think that's really true. Yeah, publishing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sorry. because people are, we, we were going to say the same. Right, thing. where it's like, oh, I missed this deadline, so I have to write this like five paragraph email, like explaining all these things, and like I'm not going to name drop where I interned, although it's not hard to figure out, I think. Um, but like. The the attitude that was sort of, like, there when, like, artists asked for, like, extensions or whatever was very, like, us versus them. Ugh. Was very, like, don't, like, you can't act like they're lying, but we're just going to assume that they're lying. And it's, like, that is not great. That's not a great, that's not great. That's not a great yeah. way to approach that yeah. relationship, to assume that if someone is asking for support, they are just lazy and lying. Um, and to, like, bring this to... <laughs> our times now mm-hmm. right we have gotten a little bit used to that like say i was emailing with someone and i email them back and forth and they respond to my emails within 48 hours and then suddenly they don't answer my email for a couple of weeks 
am I mad? No, I'm kind of worried for them. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to assume they're doing something wrong. And I'm also not going to assume it's my business. Right. I'm going to give them time. Maybe I'll give them a reminder yeah. after two weeks. You might like follow but up. But I'm just going to give them time. But yeah, yeah. It's, not like, it's not like, oh, you didn't respond to me in time. So you don't care about this project. Right? Like that's the attitude that like yeah. really upsets me is the idea that like if someone doesn't perform a certain kind of engagement um that they don't care um so anyway i i'm gonna it's not fair yeah anyway i'm gonna end i wanted to end on a really like i wanted to end on a positive note (laughs) go for it so i wanted to bring in just a little bit of disability justice um disability justice is a queer trans poc led liberatory movement that differs from the disability rights movement um so it's not part of the disability rights movement, right? Obviously, there's overlaps, but they're not the same thing because the disability rights movement is largely white and focused on legal frameworks, right? So getting accommodations through the ADA, for instance, which we should say is the Americans with Disabilities Act, if you don't know. The term disability justice was coined by Sins Invalid, which is a um, disability justice-based performance project that, and this is their words, um, incubates artists with disabilities, centralizing artists of color, and LGBTQ slash gender variant artists led by queer people of color. They have a really great like primer to disability justice that we can link. Um, but what I actually wanted to read here are the 10 principles of disability justice. Um, and this is, again, from Sins Invalid, which is S-I-N-S space I-N-V-A-L-I-D, Sins Invalid. Mm. So the 10 principles of disability justice. From our vantage point within Sins Invalid, where we incubate the framework and practice of disability justice, this emerging framework has 10 principles, each offering opportunities for movement building. One, intersectionality. Simply put, this principle says that we are many things and they all impact us. We are not only disabled, we are also each coming from a specific experience of race, class, sexuality, age, religious background, geographical location, immigrant status, and more. Depending on context, we all have areas where we experience privilege as well as areas of oppression. The the term intersectionality was first introduced by feminist theorist Kimberly Crenshaw in 1989 to describe the experiences of black women who experience both racism and sexism in specific ways. We gratefully embrace the nuance that this principle brings to our lived experiences and the ways it shapes the perspectives that we offer. Um, Two, leadership of the most impacted. When we talk about ableism, racism, sexism, and transmisogyny, colonization, police violence, etc., we are not looking to academics and experts to tell us what's what. We are lifting up, listening to, reading, following, and highlighting the perspectives of those who are most impacted by the systems we fight against. By centering the leadership of those most impacted, we keep ourselves grounded in real-world problems and find creative strategies for resistance. Three. Anti-capitalist politics. Capitalism depends on wealth accumulation for some, parentheses, the white ruling class, at the expense of others, and encourages competition as a means of survival. 
The nature of our disabled body minds means that we resist conforming to normative levels of productivity in a capitalist culture, and our labor is often invisible to a system that defines labor by able-bodied, white supremacist, gender-normative standards. Our worth is not dependent on what and how much we can produce. Um, feel free to jump in if you have uh, questions or want to add anything at any point, Kathy. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm not going to read all of these in full depth. I just wanted to read those three first. Um, four, cross-movement mm. solidarity, right? So um, disability justice aligns itself with racial justice, reproductive justice, queer and trans liberation, prison abolition, environmental justice, anti-police terror, deaf, capital D, deaf activism, fat liberation, and other movements working for justice and liberation. This means challenging white disabled disability communities around racism and challenging other movements to confront ableism um five recognizing wholeness each person is full of history and life experiences each person has an internal experience composed of our own thoughts sensations emotions um, fantasies perceptions and quirks disabled people are whole people six sustainability we learn to pace ourselves, individually and collectively, to be sustained long-term. We value the teachings of our bodies and experience and use them as a critical guide and reference point to help us move away from urgency. 7. Commitment to cross-disability solidarity. We value and honor the insights and participations of all of our community members, even and especially those who are most often left out of political conversations. We are building a movement that breaks down isolation between people with physical impairments, people who are sick or chronically ill, psych survivors, and people with mental health disabilities, neurodiverse people, people with intellectual or developmental disabilities, deaf people, blind people, people with environmental injuries and chemical sens sensitivities, and all others who experience ableism and isolation that undermines our collective liberation. Eight, mm. interdependence. Before the massive project of Western European, ex massive colonial project, excuse me, of Western European expansion, we understood the nature of interdependence within our communities. We see the liberation of all living systems and the land as integral to the liberation of our own communities as we all share one planet. Nine, collective access. As black and brown and queer crips, we are bringing flexibility and creative nuance to our engagement with each other. And I'm going to pause here because um, I know some people might not hear that word very often, but uh, crip is politically reclaimed by disabled people in the same way that queer mm. has been politically reclaimed. Um, so I use crip to refer to myself, for instance, um, because it's a deliberately political word. Mm. Um, so we bring flexibility and creative we create and explore ways of doing things that go beyond able-bodied and neurotypical norms access needs aren't shameful we can all function differently depending on context and environment and then 10 is collective liberation we move together as people with mixed abilities, multiracial, multigendered, mixed class across the sexual spectrum with a vision that leaves no body mind behind this is disability justice. We honor the long-standing legacies of resilience and resistance, which are the inheritance of all of us whose bodies and minds will not confirm. Disability justice is not yet a broad-based popular movement. Disability justice is a vision and practice of what is yet to be, 
a map that we create with our ancestors and our great-grandchildren onward, in the widths and depths of our multiplicities and histories, a movement towards a world in which every body and mind is known as beautiful. And Sins Invalid and Patty Byrne Mm. wrote this together. Mm. So we will link that in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Disability justice is what I align myself with um, over like disability rights movements because it is, you know, again, sort of focused on this like collective interdependent uh, liberation. So um that is what i have love solidarity what i just said i love solidarity oh yes <laughs> love solidarity um so that is what i have um kathy do you have anything to add here um well it's time for our conclusion segment mm-hmm. what did we learn what are our goals and what do we want our takeaways to be um i yeah the, i mean the thing that i really learned is that there is a difference between accommodation and accessibility mm-hmm. and i think i have used the word accessibility is usually what i like to talk about especially um depending on schools like literally physical accessibility like ramps and stuff is always a conversation to be had but it's also interesting and a thing to think about is that sometimes uh some accessibility can be they can be like counter they can counter each other right what is accessible to one person with and their disabilities might be the opposite for someone else yeah right exactly so like i think one that i've seen is like blind person walking and their cane might need like bumps Mm -hmm. which might be difficult for some people with mobility disabilities um things like that so like this is a conversation we should be having it Mm -hmm. we should be always talking about it because there isn't going to be the a perfectly accessible designed thing right right we should always be thinking and changing and adjusting is something that i yeah yeah i think what do you think yeah no i agree yes that does make (laughs) sense and i think like one of the things that disability justice in particular really emphasizes is the importance of that sort of like agility and being able to Mm. have conversations right and be constantly sort of like Mm -hmm. aware of and understanding like where there might be those conflicts and then like what compromises can emerge right um that aren't just like Mm -hmm. well if we can't do it for everyone we just give up right (laughs) um right and i think um and part of that is this like solidarity right and being able to see yourself as part of a collective movement as opposed to an individual like well i need this and if you can't do that then like you're bad right yeah and i think as we're thinking about students but i think that can be true for artists right when you said like make the assumption that they're lying and i think a lot of things do a lot of people think um or like i don't want to make generalizations like that but sometimes like a student says i need this and it can be like, well, you've had two weeks to work on this project and you should have used those two weeks, right? Or something like right. that. We can we can try to cast doubt on what people are asking for. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if we build a culture that values growth, that values education, that, that trusts, that builds trust mm-hmm. and honesty, um, I don't think that that would be an issue. Right. Like if you... <laughs> are if if for it solidarity to me part of solidarity does mean obviously holding each other accountable but also not assuming bad faith right assuming holding each other accountable because people will make mistakes right 
and and teenagers that is that is a growing thing right we can assume that a teenager is going to make a mistake right (laughs) i mean i think you i think honestly um i think you should just always assume that anyone you're working with is going to make a mistake because that's just part of being a human and i think if you like and i'm saying this as a person who like struggles a lot with making mistakes because um they were very heavily stigmatized uh when i was growing up like making mistakes mm. um but like if someone i'm working with messes up i don't tr- i try really hard not to see that as like a personal inconvenience or like a mark that they again didn't care or weren't trying hard enough but rather as a like yeah this happens and then you just mm-hmm. course correct or do what you need to yep. do right because people will make mistakes that's just being a person mm-hmm. <laughs> we are all imperfect beings yeah and it shouldn't it shouldn't involve punishment right, right? yeah and also it shouldn't be seen as a moral failing right because also sometimes like people make mistakes because they just didn't have the like access that they needed right the level of access that they needed right especially you know to bring it back to right. a lot of those like unwritten rules for like communication um and things like that right um thank you so much remus this is awesome yeah thank you yeah i really like i said i really want to talk about this because i often see don't see it come up in the conversations around labor in comics and i feel like it's such a critical component to what we're talking about that i really wanted to just sort of be like okay this is what ableism is (laughs) and here's how you can recognize it in these spaces (laughs) yeah and and i think and i think we'll keep talking about it Mm -hmm. yeah thank you yeah and um thank you to downtown boys for their song wave of history it's off their album full communism you can buy it off their Bandcamp. this podcast is hosted on drawing a dialogue.com where you can view all the previous episodes and the citation for this podcast um drawing a dialogue is hosted on comicarted.com, which is my education website yeah which is a very very good education website i would add thank you um you can send us letters you can email us at uh drawing a dialogue at gmail.com um we always welcome emails um and you can follow yeah oh yeah <laughs> that's it yeah that's it okay email us. and then Go you ahead. can also tweet us or follow us on twitter um even if you don't want to tweet at us at draw a dialogue um, and you can follow me on Twitter at Remus. Is it just Remus? Why am I? Yes, Remus Maurice, which is R E M U S M A U R I C E. That's awesome. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Kathy G John, C A T H Y G J O H N. So, what are you reading, Remus? <laughs> So I actually have been reading um, this book uh, titled Postcolonial Astrology uh, by Alice Sparkly Cat um, that I kind of stumbled upon randomly because I, I saw uh, one of Alice Sparkly Cat's like tweets about astrology and I was like, oh, this is good. And I like, clicked through their profile and saw this book and I was like, oh, I have to get this. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's a really lovely book about um, tropical astrology, which is uh sort of what we're more familiar like in the northern american context that's sort of like the mainstream version of astrology um but really looking at the like classical greek roman origins and that relationship to then imperialism and colonization and how that informs how um we talk about astrology as like contemporary astrologists um 
and like mm. things that we can like sort of think about to move outside of those paradigms. So it's really good. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So what are you reading lately, Kathy? Um, well, I just finished Velvet Was the Night, Ooh. which is by Silvia Moreno Garcia, who is the author of Mexican Gothic, oh. which I read uh, earlier in the year. Uh, I don't know if Mexican Gothic was was a probably not because we weren't recording episodes. Um, but I was really excited for this book. It is a um, period piece. It's sort of like a noir, um, but there's like no, not a lot of cops, which I really love. <laughs> a, a sort of a noir um, story that doesn't revolve around detectives is great. Nice, and it's a period piece in the '70s in Mexico. Um, during, and I'm going to read this afterward because it sort of talks about the time period because it's really cool, like the setting. Um, the telegram that opens this book is a real message sent by the CIA. One Thursday in 1971, a shock group in, funded and organized by the Mexican government attacked a group of students marching along the large avenue in Mexico City. The Hawks had been trained by Mexican authorities with support of the CIA with an effort to squelch communism in Mexico and support dissent. So that is like the um, the historical context, but really it's just like a sexy noir with like these two characters and it's just like really awesome. And I'm actually really excited. I really want to read more Mexican literature because that it was this book was awesome. And I want more. Oh, that rules. <laughs> yeah, so it's titled Velvet Was the Night. It like just came out. So I'll have to add it to my list. Um, awesome. Yeah, great. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you for listening to Drawing a Dialogue. Uh, my name is Kathy G. Johnson. And I'm Remus Jackson. Solidarity forever. Bye. <laughs>